thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Hello, Chris. Hey, good morning. We start this week, Chris, with a really fascinating science story uh, around wind and solar farms. And I think we sometimes on the open on this particular line get questions about how to increase rain, for example. What is this story about? Well, there's a paper which is out in the journal Science this week, which has looked at the question of if we were to take the Sahara Desert, which is huge, it's 9.2 million square kilometres, and we covered it in alternative energy sources, for instance, a massive solar array, what would be the consequences not just for electricity and energy generation, but for the local environment? Because you're making a pretty dramatic change to the landscape. Would it have any kind of knock-on effects? Well, in energy terms, because of the vastness of the Sahara Desert, you'd actually make an enormous amount of energy. In fact, you could, just with present-day alternatives, you could produce four times as much energy from the Sahara Desert surface area as the entire planet consumes at the moment. So it seems like a good idea. But what Yan Lee and colleagues at the University of Maryland have published in the journal Science this week is an analysis, a model of, well, if we were to do this... How would it affect local climate? What would be the consequences for rainfall? And in their paper, what they show is that for various reasons, you would double the rainfall or at least increase by 50% the rainfall in areas across the southern Sahara and the Sahel just below the Sahara Desert, which would see rainfall increase the productivity, the amount of agriculture that you could support there quite considerably. Their model is the first one to actually say, well, Rather than just imagine vegetation as a static thing, you're going to feed back into the model. So if you change the climate a bit, that's going to change the plants a bit. And if you change the plants a bit, that's going to change the climate some more. So they've built this proper dynamic model, which takes this all into account. So as well as benefiting potentially climate change gas emissions, we would also potentially increase the productivity of the landscape uh, in the in the near area. The Sahara's so big that the the effect is most manifest there. It's less pronounced for doing this on other deserts around the world, but it's a very interesting study. That is fascinating. Thomas, good morning. Our first caller today. What is your question for Chris? Hi, Eusebius. My question is just uh, a physics-related one. Forgive me if I don't get the pronunciation right, but English was never our mother. Um, I just want to ask um, the naked scientist, what is so strange about a strange quark? (laughs) Hello, Thomas. (laughs) Lovely question. It is a lovely question. And the answer is we really don't know. First of all, what's what's a quark or quark? Well, when we look at the world around us, we see matter. Matter is made up of atoms. And those atoms, the Greeks thought we couldn't break them down any further, which is why they called them atoms, atomos, can't be cut down further. But when we've used particle smashers, we can get inside atoms. We realize atoms are made of protons, neutrons and electrons. And protons and neutrons are themselves made of these subatomic particles called quarks. Bizarrely, um, what we what we don't know is why we can make all the matter in the universe with just a down quark, an up quark, and an electron. In other words, the the two, the down and the up quark, will make protons and neutrons. We've got these other flavours of quarks, though, which include the strange and the charm. We don't actually know what they're for. So although we know they exist, and we know they're heavier than their 
down and up equivalents, we don't know what they do. So they seem to be equivalent in all other ways, except they're more massive, but we don't know their role in the universe. Um, so we, we just know that they behave equivalently in all other respects in terms of their properties, but they're, they're heavier, they're more massive. Jean, good morning. Hi, good morning, Shabes. Good morning, Chris. I love food, and you know, when I sit and enjoy my meal, I, I would like to know why do I perspire only on the right-hand side of my face and head? Is it any food or particular food, by the way? All food. Uh, Chris, can you help us? Well, not really, except I would say we'll carry on enjoying a meal because that's a very good thing. Usually (laughs) when people perspire in response to food, it's because they've eaten something with spice in it. And usually the reason that happens is because the spicy ingredient is capsaicin and capsaicin activates the C fibres, which are your pain pathways, which sense temperature in your mouth, all over your body, actually. And when you trigger those temperature-sensitive nerve fibres, it fools your body into thinking you're a bit hotter than you are, and therefore you can fool your body into triggering some of the heat loss mechanisms that help you to stay the right temperature. So it could be that those pathways are being activated by some ingredient in the food that's feeding back on the heat loss system, which is triggering perspiration, which is there to help you to cool down. But the fact that it's only happening on one side shows it's strongly a neurological thing because your nervous system is divided down the middle, right side, left side. And so the fact that it is explicitly one side of the body strongly argues it's neurological. But exactly why that process is happening might be a bit of, and this is a big speculation on my part, might be a bit of cross-wiring in the nervous system where instead of that that process I've described being triggered in the right way, perhaps other sensations or just a bit of you know thermal challenge, it's hot, is slightly triggering the heat loss systems more on one side than the other, which is why you're sweating on one side more than the other. Hmm. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Indeed, you listen to the familiar voice of Chris, 12 minutes after 10. You can also tweet your question. Abby, good morning. Welcome to the show. Good morning. Why is the weight the same on top of Mount Everest and at the sea level, something will be the very same weight? Okay. I guess what you're getting at is weight is the force that we feel because of the effect of gravity on mass. So an object has mass because it's made of matter. A matter has a mass. And when gravity accelerates that mass, you feel a force, and that force is what we call its weight. Now, the difference between sea level and the top of Mount Everest is not very much when you consider that the effect of gravity is exerted through the centre of a body. The radius of the Earth is about 6,000 kilometres. So, in other words, the difference between the Earth's surface and the core, and the Earth's surface at the top of Mount Everest and the core is so inconsequentially small that the acceleration, the force of gravity, is barely going to change between those two. There is a difference, and there's a difference because of relativity, but it's a tiny one. And so, to all intents and purposes, the weight is the same in those two places. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Tawanda, good morning. Welcome to the show. I'm an Uber driver, so I wanted to ask, I use an app called Waze for my navigating. So what I wanted to ask the Ringed scientist is, why is it that when I'm driving, the navigator will be showing uh, certain uh, different kilometers that I'm driving at, and then the speedometer on my car will be showing something different? So there's a, okay, discrepancy between Waze and the speedometer about how fast you are driving. Yes. 
Yeah, lovely question, this one. And there's a couple of things to bear in mind. One of the things to bear in mind is that the odometer on the car is usually wrong. And it's wrong in the sense that usually it overreads. So in other words, it's set a little bit over so that you're less likely to get a speeding ticket. In other words, if you're driving along at, say, 60 kilometres an hour, by your odometer, you're probably actually doing about 55. So they're about 10% overreading. Um, oh, sorry about that. Um, it might speed up Joburg traffic a bit. You never know. Um, no, I think some things are beyond help, actually. But So that's one of the things, that that, that uh, calibration is usually set conservatively to protect you as a driver, so you're not going to get yourself into trouble. The second is that the way in which Waze is calculating the speed is by GPS. It's using the GPS receiver in your phone. The way GPS works is that it's seeing signals coming from a constellation of satellites orbiting the Earth. Those satellites have written into the signals which they're sending down to the Earth a time signature. And your device can therefore see when each of those signals arriving left the satellite and it therefore knows how far that radio beam has travelled to get to your device and it resolves based on the time it took the light signal from the satellite to reach you where you must be on the Earth's surface and it's averaging your speed. So what it's doing is it's saying, I'm taking the distance you've travelled along the road, I know uh, how far you've travelled, I know how long it took you to do that and I'm going to therefore calculate an average speed and that's what it's going to return to you. So actually, the device, the Waze app, is going to return, and your GPS device on your dashboard actually, is going to return a more accurate average speed than just looking at your odometer reading on your car. So that's the one to go for, and that's actually the one that you can, you can show that data to the police officer, and they should be able to then say, well, you know, you're not going to get a ticket, because if you stick to that number, they cannot, if their devices are calibrated correctly, they cannot give you a ticket, because those GPS devices are accurate. That is absolutely fascinating. Jonathan, good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Hi, CBS. Hi, Chris. Uh, well, I didn't have a question, but I thought I might have an in- interesting correction for, for the naked scientist, maybe for the first time. Um, he, earlier, he mentioned capsaicin um, activating the pain pathways, and uh, the updated research says that there actually are no pain pathways per se, and we should start to correct our language around pain, um, that there are actually nociceptive pathways, which are mainly or described as uh, pathways that um, alert us to possible impending danger. But pain pathways, that's been updated. Chris, a thought on that? Well, thank you very much. I didn't use the word nociception because to the majority of the population, the word nociception doesn't mean anything. People are familiar with the word pain and pain and temperature. And we talk about CNA delta fibers. These are the the fine caliber, very small nerve cells that are in our skin, every mucous membrane of your body. We talk about them as pain fibers. They are sensitive to the sorts of stimuli that will damage tissue. High temperature, chemical injury, physical trauma. So while I was simplifying... Um, the facts that I imparted are still accurate. And um, yes, I use some simpler language than nociception, but what I, what I told you is, is correct. Hmm. Dudu, good morning to you. Good morning, Chris. Morning. Yeah, my question relates to rocket launching. When a rocket is being launched, it starts straight up. And then you see after some time, it starts to slant and bend. Now, how do they achieve that? There's a, a number of aspects of what they're trying to do. The reason rockets actually launch in the first place and the reason they get off the ground is because of Newton's third law. Basically, you have a rocket which is 
generating a very great acceleration of gas and if you accelerate something and therefore apply a big force to it in one direction you get a big push back in the opposite direction which is how the rocket takes off it lifts off and then as it's going up in, up in the air there are various things you can do in order to change the trajectory of the rocket and using the same physics i just mentioned to you if you throw a bit more gas in one direction than in another you will feel a force in the opposite direction so it's possible to steer and alter the trajectory of these rockets by changing how much a different set of engines are burning so the way in which these things maneuver themselves when they're in space and when they're getting into space is you just increase the force from one set of engines over another or you have a set of thrusters that push you a bit in one direction and you don't balance that in the opposite direction so you'll you'll feel a net force and you change the direction of the spacecraft. But a lot of that launch sequence is all automated, and it's a question of you've got to achieve escape velocity. You've got to be going sufficiently fast, as in kilometres per second by the time you're getting up there. But most of that stuff is basically all pre-programmed, what trajectory the the rocket's going to take, and they usually launch in such a way that you you cheat a bit because you launch with the direction the Earth's already travelling, so that you actually get a bit of an extra burst of speed as well. Okay, thank you so much for that question. James, good morning to you. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Um, Chris, the Parker Solar Probe, I'm fascinated by this heat shield that's on it, which can reduce temperatures from 1400 centigrade to 30 degrees centigrade. Do you know what material it is made of? Actually, we do, because we made a piece all about this. We actually talked to one of the mission scientists recently on The Naked Scientist. And if you go to our website, nakedscientist.com, and go to the podcast section, it it was about um, three weeks ago, I think we published this. The heat shield itself sits out in front of all the electronics. It's, It's like a big Chinese hat, a sort of cone, and it's very thin, but it's got, a ref- it's got a reflective surface. So a lot of the incident photons are just going to bounce off. And, and behind it are various other things that carefully mitigate the flow of thermal energy through it. So it basically casts a shadow so that the devices that are the sensitive heat sem- temperature sensitive devices for the craft are positioned behind it in, in the shadow so that the light doesn't hit them. Um, the, the best reference I can give you is to go and listen to that programme because the lady who we interview is one of the engineers on the project and she explains in detail what it's made of, what the various compositions are and how it works. Okay, Promise, good morning. Morning, uh, I just want to know what are the disadvantages of the supersonic aircraft because they are not in use. Well, of course, they are in use because uh, the military use jets which can go incredibly quickly. But we don't have any commercial aircraft anymore which are flying supersonically and carrying passengers. Concorde was the bearer of that crown and was retired about 20 years ago now, wasn't it? Um, Almost 20 years ago, I think. But Concorde used to fly supersonically, uh, you know, two and a bit times the speed of sound, and you could go from London to New York in a matter of hours. It was incredible. But the point is that the fuel costs are absolutely astronomical. Every time you increase your speed a bit, because of the drag forces, you're actually increasing your fuel spend by twice to three times that amount to go that little bit faster. So it was enormously expensive to run, and therefore the return is not judged to be 
sufficient to justify the enormous maintenance costs and the enormous operating costs so people just have to rough it in steerage and sit there for 24 hours at the moment until we come up with a better option but certainly supersonic travel is used and anyone who is in the military knows that who flies who flies uh, very fast jets because they can very easily break the sound barrier and often do as someone did over my garden a few years ago and and, um, (laughs) we've had buildings with their windows shattered just because of the military demonstrating that you can create a sonic boom by going a bit fast in your jet so not in commercial use but certainly in military use so it's not fundamentally around safety fears when it comes to commercial use it was actually a cost issue it's just impractical to go that fast because to go that fast you have very small aircraft you can't get very many people in so it's a very premium offering and it's on environmental terms just unjustifiable (laughs) abby i think we have you back on a better line Uh, let's see whether we can hear you what was your question yeah, my question is, I wanted in, in your conversion of alcohol on a 340 milliliters compared to uh, people, uh, the one consume more, uh, 330 milliliters, but the same alcohol. I want to know the, 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 the percentage of alcohol in each person. If you consume more, are you having, are you adding or what? Well, it wasn't a great line, but I think, are you asking basically when you drink the alcohol that's in the drink, what happens to that alcohol in the person? And the answer is that the more alcohol you take into your body, the greater the dose of alcohol, regardless of your body size, because you're still taking into your body that dose of alcohol. The difference between individuals is how big they are. So if you have an enormously tall person, compared to a very small person, the amount of volume they can dilute the alcohol into is going to be different between the two. The rate at which they're therefore able to metabolise the alcohol is likely to be different between the two. But the amount of alcohol you take is directly proportional to how much you you take in from the original drink. And if you've got a beer that says it's 4.5% alcohol or a glass of wine that says it's 12% alcohol, obviously if if you drink the same amount of alcohol you'll have to drink more beer to get the same amount of alcohol, but ultimately it's going to end up in your body and it's going to get into your nervous system and ultimately make you drunk. So you can get equivalently drunk on wine or beer. And the rate at which that happens is going to be proportional to your body size with a big person being a bit less susceptible than a small person who will need a smaller dose because then it gets into the nervous system more quickly. But on on the whole, it's, it's an absolute amount of alcohol you've got to be concerned about, especially when considering whether or not it's bad for your health. Grace, good morning. Good morning. I just want to ask, I was watching a baking program the other day and they said that flour is very explosive. Could you explain to us why that is? Hello, Grace. Yes, and this actually led to the destruction of a number of of, uh, windmills in the old days and also baking factories in the past. And the reason for this is flour is carbohydrate. It's starch. And starches, lots of carbon atoms all stuck together with some hydrogen stuck on the outside. And it's therefore, because it's got a lot of carbon in it, it's a very good fuel. But if I just took some flour out of a packet and a spoon and lit it, very little would happen. It might go a bit black, but it wouldn't burn very well. But if I blow the flour into a fine dust, because the particles are so fine, they bob around on the air they don't all sink down and that means that they have a very big surface area to volume ratio you've got lots of air and lots of oxygen which is going to oxidize the fuel all around each of the particles and if you put a flame to that dust it will explode because all of it will burn very quickly and release a lot of heat energy and that will cause the air to expand and the other flour to burn even faster and the result will be a big increase in the volume of gas which is what an explosion is. So flour can be explosive 
if it's put into a big cloud and lit as a cloud but when you've got a packet of it and you just put a flame to it nothing's going to happen because the it hasn't got that big surface area to volume ratio so the oxygen can't get at it when it's in the packet but when you've got it floating around in the air it can and it will burn very fiercely thank you chris we'll do it again next week thanks eusebius thanks everyone see you soon bye-bye thinking about your next career move in research and development then it's time to make your move to the uk the nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.